0: Hi, everyone. I'm Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX. This week, we'll be breaking down the big headlines in global development and bringing in some top experts to help us do it. If you want to follow along with the stories we're talking about, check out devx.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter, The Newswire. There's a link in the description. Follow us along on Twitter, and you can see many of the stories we're talking about today. And we'd love to hear what you think. This is this week in global development. We're joined this week by a special guest, Larry Cooley. Larry, good to see you. Good to hear you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. Um, And Larry, you know, I think people in our audience know you very well, but is the founder and president emeritus at Management Systems International. Uh, You've got a lot of different hats that you wear. You're the board chair of the Society for International Development and World Learning. And you do a lot of work on issues of scaling, uh, which maybe we'll get into a little bit today. You know, as usual, a packed news week, lots to talk about. But since this is August thirty first, last day of this generally quiet month before a very busy September begins, I thought maybe we'd kind of start big picture, Larry, because, you know, we were covering this week, uh, looking ahead to UN General Assembly, looking ahead to the World Bank annual meetings in October. Of course, the COP meeting is coming a little after that. And this nexus of climate and development keeps showing up in the headlines at DevEx. We, um, we had an interview, Will Worley, our climate correspondent, had an interview this week with um, the Dutch uh, minister who is in charge of, uh, of water um, in Stockholm when he was at the World Water Conference. And she said, you know, climate adaptation is water. Uh, so really trying to zone in on water being the key factor. And and I've heard this from many others, and I kind of wonder if you have a take on, you know, just broadly how the climate conversation and the development conversation are interacting now or might interact in the future, how important you think water is going to be in that. Just kind of your general take on this, on these two spaces and, and how they're coming together, because we're hearing so much about that for UNGA, for the World Bank meetings, and for COP, of course going forward?
1: Well, it's a big question, and I'll try at least a a little slice of an answer, which is that I think water has always been a central issue. And it's only more recently that we've tied it and changes in water availability to the climate question, but that's a legitimate tie. If you look at what's scarcest on the planet, what people fight about most often, I think water would have to come in in first place. So you could have said when we started becoming concerned, more concerned about conflict, that conflict was water. And in many cases, you'd be right. And when we were concerned before that about development, you could say that development is water, and I think you wouldn't be too far off. And now we're saying that the climate change is water, and I think we're right again. I think simply it's a resource that's in scarce supply and great demand, and it's not easily divided and people fight about it. And to make matters worse, the the world's governance systems are pretty bad at water because it tends to cross borders and deal with things that we're not well set up to, to deal with.
0: Yeah, I've heard experts say that, you know, in the end, when the planet is warming and the climate is shifting, the way most people are going to really experience it is through water, either too much water, uh, in many cases, obviously, here we're talking about the Dutch minister, and the Netherlands certainly knows what it's like as a low-lying country to be subjected to too much water.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: that's going to become common in many places. Already is, um, or not enough water. Right? It's either there's too much and you're being flooded, or there's not enough and you're and you're experiencing drought. And that, in the end, while climate has many, many impacts, that this will be the one that most people end up experiencing. And I guess that's important because, you know, you and I are both live in Washington, D.C., and as you think about politics around foreign aid and and how these narratives shape and determine what actually gets funded. You know, maybe in the end, this is an opportunity to kind of be the tip of the spear on climate and development.
1: Well, I think water has a tangibility that a lot of other things don't. And I remember hearing a, a water specialist talking once upon a time and saying something I guess is pretty obvious, but it wasn't obvious to me until until she said it, which is that the quantity of water on the planet is basically fixed. It can get polluted or not. It can get moved around or or not. But basically, it's neither created nor destroyed in any significant measure. And so, if somebody gets it at what point in time, somebody else doesn't. Or if somebody gets too much, probably somebody's getting too little. And it's going to be something that people are going to fight about. There's just no question about it. And it. The fact that it coincides like other resources with power means that the people who fight about it don't necessarily fight clean about it. They fight for their interests and they do so whether or not that happens to serve a greater good or not. And so I think we're going to be really pressed, I mean really pressed as a development community to figure out how we engage on this issue. And to go back to the way you first framed the question, I think the climate argument sets it up about as starkly as you possibly could. Yeah, we had an opinion article published this week in DevX by Nancy Lee over at the Center for Global
0: Development. And you know, she makes the point that we need to really integrate the climate strategy and the development strategy at the country level. And you know, maybe surprisingly to some, I was certainly a little, certainly a little bit surprised by it as I read it, that with all the various development strategies that many agencies, USAID, the World Bank, so many others, create that there isn't a unified strategy for climate and development at the at the country level and she essentially published this piece in in devx pushing for for just such a an integrated strategy i'm curious your take on that idea i mean you've been around at the world bank and at usaid you know how a lot of these agencies operate i i wonder even how important these strategies are to begin with the ones that already exist and whether you think they're could and should be a future where we do integrate climate and development that, you know, in that tight of a way
1: at the country level. I have so many things I want to say about that, but I'll discipline myself to a couple. I thought that Nancy's piece was terrific. Uh, and I think there are some really major challenges to doing that. Uh, that. One of them is the fact that country strategies have proven to be incredibly elusive. I'm old enough to be a veteran of of five-year plans when they were in the forefront of everybody's thinking. And I think they're important in terms of standing back and trying to decide a country's priorities. But what happens in a, particularly in a polarized world, but in a place where resources are scarce is all kinds of things end up upending those plans. And when donors try to get together on their side of the transaction most prominently, I think, when Jim Wolfensohn tried for country development strategy, the recipient country said, is that looks like the donors ganging up on us rather than an economy of scale. So there's a kind of of a centrifugal pull that fights against the idea of having unified strategies. And also, there's also the concern about places where governments are less than fully representative of their people. That said, I don't see a way through this problem that doesn't involve having some strategic focus on things and trying to galvanize attention and resources around the biggest problems. One of the other hats I wear is I'm on something called the National Academy of Public Administration. And we're working on comparative approaches to governing climate adaptation. And when you look at the cases we're looking at right now happen to be the United States, China, and Australia. And when you look at the comparisons and the way people try to prepare, who's involved in preparing, and what the effects are in trying to implement those plans, you really see in as clear a way as I can imagine how different political systems work when it comes to trying to put together plans like that. Then in an area I'm not directly involved in, AI, you see the limits of governments, and you see how many things governments don't control and how important it is for them to try to garner the, the attention and sometimes uh, control the behavior of private companies and private actors. So I think the, the intention to integrate these things is right. It's even necessary. But the barriers are big. And maybe it's just because of the particular background I have. But to me, the biggest ones look like governance issues. Yeah, I think it's it's almost like three-dimensional
0: chess because it's hard enough to do really comprehensive planning in a rich country right, with all of the political wins and the challenges of integrating public and private incentives. But then you go to a low and middle income country, you might have governance challenges as you were talking about, then you have all the different donors with all of their own perspectives. And so you're trying to you know align so many people. And I guess what I worry about is you, in this process of alignment,
1: you waste a lot of time. You're going to waste a lot of time, and it's a very particular kind of leadership that's necessary to make that happen. I mean, you're right that the governance issues are more obvious and extreme in, in other parts of the world, but I've been looking recently at the case of Vermont and the case of Hawaii in terms of disaster preparedness. Those are two states that worked really hard at it, and look what happened to both of them. So trying to get the right forces together and then not just come up with a plan, but come up with the, the motivation and the resources and the alignment necessary to implement the plan is a test of everybody's ingenuity and, and I think, leadership on this. And I think we're going to see, this is a, a little bit perhaps abstract, but I think we're going to see a need for the next generation, people, I hope some of whom are on the call, to think about leadership in a different way because the the hierarchies are really not going to serve us entirely well for some of these things and the kind of narrow definition of who's in which lane is not going to do it either so whether you're on the donor side and trying to figure out the problem of donor alignment with country strategies or you're on the country side and trying to figure out how to bring in the private sector into what's going on you're going to be faced with some version of this problem, a whole bunch of interacting things. And one of the things that I, I've often said and I really believe is that our ability to conceptualize that complexity is way in front of our ability to manage it. So somehow we're going to have to catch up on the management side. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, how do you bring in the private sector? And I wonder, right? That's a big
0: theme right now. Certainly will be at the General Assembly of the UN and, and certainly at the World Bank meetings. Ajay Banga's first coming up fairly soon now. You know, I wonder whether the traditional approach in the development community, which tends to be a bit top-down, right? is let's develop a strategy, a country strategy, so that we at USAID know what to fund. And it's kind of a you know government to government sort of approach. And I wonder whether as we move into maybe a new era where we're trying to incentivize private investment, whether that's the right approach, approach at all, or whether we should be thinking more about sectors, and even sectors that cut across national boundaries, um, whether it's in things like water or think about like, you know, battery technology and how those get produced so that you can have an energy transition in, in entire regions. And I wonder whether we we're kind of fully understanding and adapting to a new world in which private funding becomes much, much more important and bigger than public funding. The the Minister for Water in the Netherlands said, Hey, you know, we can't rely on private funding alone. We need to really focus on public finance, but When you look at the numbers, it sure looks like the private finance is going to be the opportunity here, the place where we can really grow the total amount of funding that's available to to development and climate issues combined.
1: I think that's been true for a long time, and we just haven't caught up to it in our thinking. I remember a few years ago, I had some interactions with Steve Radlett when he was chief economist at AID. And then after he left, looking at the respective funding streams for what we might broadly call development. And for every dollar of foreign assistance, so of every dollar of foreign assistance, there so were seven dollars of foreign direct investment and twenty-five dollars of local of local government tax revenue. So think about it. I mean, means that the foreign aid funding, even back then, was maybe a one, two, three percent contribution to the national spend. Now that's not entirely fair because a lot of those national resources are committed to very specific things, paying teachers, running hospitals, and so on. And so the development spend ends up being a larger percentage of the discretionary budget, but it's still small. And so the ability, I think people are already realizing that the the key game in town is the ability to use development assistance to change what host governments do. But we're only catching up on the idea of the private sector on this to say, what can we really do with development spend, with public spending? that will have a material effect on what other people do. And if we're simply looking at the optimum direct returns from the things we're doing, we're playing in a little tiny corner of the field.
0: Yeah, and especially with climate being in the picture, right? Because there's so many investable areas that are related to the energy transition, Uh, whether it's renewable energy itself, right? Or think about sustainable agriculture um, or other kinds of sustainable infrastructure you can envision you know real investment models, business models that companies could invest in. And if you have the policy right, you could align those investments to both development and climate goals.
1: Yeah, there's no question about it. I mean, look at solar. There there's, isn't any question that even if the planet were not in jeopardy, eventually it's going to overtake petroleum as the most economic energy source. And so if we can do stuff to speed that and to incentivize it, where we have every chance of coinciding with a commercial agenda, it's not necessarily the case that that means the poor are gonna benefit. So trying to figure out how to make sure that people are not widening divides that are already grotesque in the way we do this, I think is gonna be a bit of a challenge. But the fact that there are financial incentives for people to pursue some of these things, and we can use public money to improve those financial incentives, I think that's absolutely clear.
0: Hi, I'm Kate Warren, Executive Editor at DevEx. If you are listening to this podcast, you're likely working to achieve the sustainable development goals. But are you subscribed to DevEx Newswire? Global development can be a fast-moving, complex sector. Our team of global reporters work every day to bring you the news you need to make sense of it all. In DevEx Newswire, we keep you up to date on issues ranging from climate change financing to gender equality and global health to transforming the food system, all in a fun-to-read, free newsletter delivered directly to you five days a week. Join the hundreds of thousands of global development professionals who receive DevX Newswire and visit devx.com slash newsletters to sign up to this free newsletter today. Just kind of picking up another topic that we've been covering this past week, which is you know a standard topic recently for us, and that's localization. You know, everybody's talking about it, we're reporting and writing about it a lot. And uh, this week we did a special session with a recently retired uh, senior contracting officer from USAID, Chuck Pope. We asked him kind of in an Ask, ask Me Anything format for our pro subscribers, uh, you know, what what's really happening with localization? How is it actually going and, and what can we do differently? And as you were just saying about public finance, you know, incenting um, the private sector, the big promise and dream is that we'll take the fairly limited budget of agencies like USAID and use it to build a, an entire market of local organizations that can do a lot of the work that you know organizations like the one you founded, MSI, um, you know, used to do and currently do, coming out of richer countries like the U.S. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to to Chuck's comments, but basically they boil down to the idea that that USAID simply doesn't have the staffing capacity to ever achieve something like a 25% localization target, and that it's kind of getting in its own way, letting the, the perfect be the enemy of the good enough, he said. Um, I'd love your general take on that, and, and maybe we can get into it a little bit more as well.
1: Well, as you know, I've, I've worked on that issue a lot. And from my point of view, uh, Chuck is right, at, and and I would go farther, in the sense that when you hear the localization debate, particularly the part that, that begins from a framing that deals with neocolonialism and things of that sort, I think it's useful to differentiate three different objectives. One is what I would call local voice, not just me. A lot of people call it local voice, and I think that's the most profound and the most important. The second one talks about strong local institutions, whether we're talking about government institutions, private institutions, nonprofit institutions... And the third talks about local implementing partners. And the 25% focuses clearly, and I would say exclusively, on local implementing partners. But if it's not careful, it walks past the two larger objectives of local voice and strong local institutions. And the second aid objective, the 50% objective, comes much, much closer. But I'm afraid that the the first one, the 25% objective, is sucking all of the oxygen out of the room. That said, on, this, on that specific objective of the 25%, I think there are a lot of ways to get there. And I agree with Chuck that the agency, if it tries to do this in the way that it originally intended, which is simply direct awards of 25% to local organizations, could do that if and only if it goes to the biggest and most established local institutions. And I worry about the consequence of that. Uh, the other thing I, I worry about is whether in doing that, there's a real threat to the diversity of what should be going on at the local level, because often the role of third parties is to try to bring in voices that are not actively heard right now. And if you go to the most prominent local actors, you play into a local economy that's already pretty well established and more importantly, a more polit- a political economy. It's well established and I, I worry about what happens to the unheard voices. Do you think that might already be happening? I mean, I don't know, you pick a
0: a middle income country that gets a good amount of USAID funding and so might already have one or two pretty sizable local organizations used to getting USAID funding at some level, maybe as a subcontractor. Are they now kind of standing up as prime contractors and beginning to win? awards and maybe winning so much that they
1: can kind of squeeze out the competition and take over that market? I don't want to say it quite that bluntly, because a number of those organizations, I think, are some of the finest organizations on the planet. And nothing would please me more than to see them grow and prosper. So it's not that somehow I think they're bullies and they're pushing other people around. I just think it's something people need to be vigilant about, the same way we would be concerned about small small business participation in the U.S. economy, that trying to make sure if the purpose of doing this is not just keeping more dollars in country, but providing a better vehicle for local voice and participation, then we need to worry about inclusion at that end also?
0: Interesting. I mean, Chuck Pope in, in that uh, DevX Pro event said, you know, look, what he would do is just do kind of larger cooperating agreements with really established implementing partners. So I'm imagining, he didn't say, but I'm imagining a lot of U.S., Based implementing partners, and simply as a, t- under the terms of that cooperating agreement, mandate that something like 80% of the money is granted on to local orgs through that established partner. What do you think of that as a potential solution? Or do you think it has pitfalls? You know, that it, you'll end up just kind of empowering the, the current partners. And in the end, the, these local organizations will just be a lot more like what they are already, which is
1: subcontractors. I think it's a, it's a risk, and I think it's a risk whether those, the large organizations you're administering are themselves local or are U.S.-based. Either way, it's a, it's a risk. But I agree with him that that should be an important part of the, the strategy and their ways to mitigate the, the risks that are involved. I can tell you that aid at least initially rejected that as an approach. What they, they saw in that, a kind of a continuation of sorts of the current model. Be- I know that because uh, we put forward a group that I was part of, that is a partial solution, trying to increase and maximize the, the role of grants under contract or, or other forms of subgranting. And they said, well, that would be great too, but that's not what we mean. We mean 25% that are going directly in the first instance to local organizations. Well, okay, fair enough. Then I think somebody needs to get really busy trying to work at making sure those organizations are they ready and, and really performing in the spirit of what was intended on this. Because if it's done in a kind of a mechanical way and someone's just counting the number of dollars, then I think the risks that you and I are talking about are real. Right, well, what
0: Chuck Pope is, is pointing to is just saying USAID simply doesn't have enough staff because obviously these would have to be smaller grants and they would have to go to a wider range of local
1: organizations. And so
0: you just need more contracting officers to administer them.
1: That's right, you know, and I think having heard uh, Samantha Power talk about this early on in the in the initiative i think her vision i don't i've never had this conversation with her so i'm just putting two and two together and maybe incorrectly but i think her vision of local organizations included things like the league of women voters in a country or organizations that are truly the heartblood of that of that country's civil society and local institutional base. If you're going to really go for those kinds of organizations, they are not traditional aid recipients from donors. And somebody's going to have to work hard, 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 to really make sure either that the the terms don't require them to be what they aren't, or that they're well-equipped or indemnified from the kinds of consequences that are going to happen if they don't do this exactly the way aid is used to having it done. Yeah, we
0: practically needed a glossary to listen to Chuck Pope talk in our DEMX Pro event because of the number of acronyms and terms he was using, which to people who aren't used to the USAID you know, procurement world,
1: it just shows how high the bar is, how, how big the barrier is to entry. Well look I mean I as you know I ran an organization that does that kind of work for a long time and organizations that do this as their as their daily fare eventually become expert in how to manage those situations now I'm not saying that's a particularly lofty accomplishment but it is an accomplishment and it means that the ability to be consistent with the congressional and US government requirements is present. Now, if you remove that, you either need to re- remove some of those requirements or you need to make sure the organizations that you're working through are equally adept at trying to satisfy them. Because the last thing you want to do to a local organization is give them a grant and then be all over them with audit findings, say they haven't somehow done it the way you wish they would. Right.
0: It certainly feels like on the one hand, you know, if we go down the road of um, these cooperative agreements to larger established orgs and ensure that they on-grant it to smaller local ones, it it sort of feels like, well, it could work, it's practical, but it's also in many ways unsatisfying and doesn't really feel like it's addressing those other points you brought up that are equally important about local voice and really building stronger local institutions. It feels very similar to the
1: current model. So I can see why it's not terribly attractive to the agency. If you were to do it the other way... uh Think of an organization like the Inter-America Foundation, it definitely does it the other way. But those are relatively small grants to local organizations with whom they've worked for a long period of time and that they know well. If you try to move aid into that space, aid would need a lot more people and they would need to work in a significantly different way than most of the missions work these days. I wouldn't say that would be a bad thing. I think that could be a wonderful world too, but that's a different world and it does not look like traditional bilateral aid assistance. It's closer to the way foundations work.
0: Well, Chuck Pope also commented not just on the small, you know, local grants that uh, are such a big part of the agenda of the agency, but on the largest uh, the largest contract that the agency is putting forward, what we, what we all know as Next gen. And that's the global yeah. health supply chain contract. And, and Chuck was saying that, you know, this $17 billion contract is likely to continue to be delayed. DevX has been reporting about the delays and that it's essentially, and I'm quoting him here, a perfect example of a major symptom of the catastrophic staffing shortage that USAID faces. He also says it's very likely to fall into what he calls the protest zone, meaning there'll be, a, there'll be legal challenges no matter what happens. You know, you've again you know the agency well, you know this world of implementing partners well. What's your take on this this next gen contract, this massive set of I think nine interlocking contracts that, that make up the, the global health supply chain uh, contract that
1: USAID is putting forward? Well others have a better line of sight on that than I do. I, I never worked a great deal in the health sector and I don't know those contracts very well. But I think what he says on the surface is absolutely right. When you take a $17 billion bite out of the aid budget, then the way that goes is in large measure uh, more than a stalking horse. It's kind of a major element of the way the agency as a whole has gone on issues like localization or, or, or a whole host of other issues. So getting this right is an important aspect of trying to get their overall strategy right. But if you start thinking about trying to move those sorts of resources through local organizations, I think the best uh, test to look at is PEPFAR. Because PEPFAR has had this very high bar for a long time. I think it's 80% of PEPFAR funds that are supposed to go through local organizations. And indeed, I think most countries have done that. So if you look at the, the types of local organizations through whom that's worked, and the mechanisms that have had to be employed to do that, I think you get the good, the bad, and the not so good in terms of what it means when you try to hit a very high target for, for local institutions. Uh, in a way, it's it's almost a litmus test for what would happen as you try to do that on a larger scale. Yeah, I think that's right. And PEPFAR supporters have long told me that, look, they are a real success story in this.
0: And it gets to your second you know, point around localization that, that a big of this is to try to build strong local institutions and essentially what pepfar has said is look we we don't want to just come in and fund the fight against hiv in the country and then when our funding dries up or when we leave the situation goes right back to where it was we want to build institutions locally And, and i think some of those investments really paid off during COVID. right we saw that the health institutions the supply chains in a number of countries funded by pepfar were in a position to quickly pivot and you know, lead
1: the fight against COVID. There is something to that. And I, and I think it's uh, like all the things we're talking about today, it's complicated. I mean, I think there's, there are things you would not, you would want to learn from that experience that would be cautionary tales, not to repeat. But there was a lot of positive experience of exactly the sort you're talking about. I, I'm on the board of a foundation called ELMA that does a lot of work with women and children in Africa. And one of the areas we work in is pediatric AIDS. And we're concerned, as are many now, with what we're calling the PEPFAR babies. But we don't mean, in this case, the young children. We mean the institutions that grew up around PEPFAR funding that are now dependent on U.S. government funding and kind of built around that. And that are not really, in many cases, well-equipped to dealing with their own domestic resource mobilization and application needs precisely because they've been built to task. For, for the USAID market. So I think there's a lot to be learned about using this to build strong institutions. But again, it takes, it takes time on USAID's part and everybody else's to really extract the best lessons and, and build on them. Well, I love talking about
0: these nuanced issues with you, Larry, because you know them so well and have the experience to go with it. And, and you're so right, you know, in the end, there's so many trends and fads and buzzwords, whether it's the journey to self-reliance or localization, uh, but ultimately, we're kind of talking about development itself, right, that the ability to build up institutions that can, you know, present themselves with great governance that are actually responsive to to their own people and their own communities that have longstanding and sustainable funding. Yeah, you know, these are all ultimately development challenges. And so they might seem kind of technical in nature. And, you know, we love reporting on all those technical details. But to me, they're exciting because they're right at the heart of what we're all trying to achieve. Amen. Well, listen, it's been great being with you once again for This Week in Global Development. I want to thank everybody who's listening in and stay tuned for more. Thanks so much, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been This Week in Global Development. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe using the link in the description to get even more coverage and analysis on the most pressing development issues of the day become a devx pro member by going to devx.com slash membership and signing up thank you for listening and see
1: you next week